Welcome to PhD with Women on It, Hack the Future. My name is Beata Young, and today's PhD Positivity Hack Delivered will be by Judith Kawuzhne. Topic, how to increase your chances for happily ever after. Episode 69 starts here. Let me remind you, this is a grassroots community that focuses on women on IT, an inclusive forum of women in technology, startups, and female leaders who are supported by men as well. And I bring heart to that hustle because empathy is my mojo. And empathy is critical when you want to increase your chances of happily ever after. Let me first remind you to mention a couple of uh, important people in our community. Great job, Noodleite and Hope Technical University for creating a design thinking bootcamp. Let's continue to support the ne next generation of thinkers. Shoko Nora is indeed an inspiration for encouraging sustainable lifestyle choices around the world, where she spoke on the Life Initiative by Narenda Modi. Great News Worldwide Life Fund and Conservation International will help firms integrate in action on nature and climate with the new science-based targets network seafood value chain workstream. In today's episode, we are going to learn how to increase your chances for happily ever after. Marriage is a big deal. It's one of the biggest steps you can take in your life, and it's an extremely important decision, and it's important to plan for the future. There are so many things to consider before getting married. It is really important to know the legal and financial consequences before saying, I do. It's important to remember that marriage is a commitment, and it's only going to work if both parties want it in the long run. It is a big step and it can be scary to make that decision, but there are lots of things you can do to make sure that your marriage is the happiest ride of all. How do you increase your chances for a happily ever after? For Positivity Hack Delivered number 69, we are joined by Julie Kawuzhne, mediator and lawyer for divorces for over 43 years. She created the Marriage License Handbook of the Rules for Marriage, a quick and easy reference to the small details everyone should know before they say, I do. In her years of service, she found many clients and not understood the financial consequences of marriage, and very few people realized they could write financial agreements during marriage and postnups. And though everything they owned before marriage became community property upon marriage. Judith has seven children and learned a great deal from them. Now she writes and continues to freelance as a reporter and contributing writer for the Farland Observer. We think it's important to have open conversation about marriage and you're more than welcome to join in and ask your question. Judith, where in the world are you today? I am here in my my office in downtown Fullerton, California. That's, uh, I believe, beautiful opportunity to start your day because it's just 9 a.m. this morning and we are joining you from Valletta, sunny 
Mediterranean capital in the middle of the sea. I wanted to congratulate you on podcast learning because you uh, said that you want to one of your recent projects is actually being uh, a podcast guest. I believe it's your first appearance on live stream, is it? Yes, it is. Very, yes, very exciting. Uh, fantastic. I'm really looking forward for the outcomes because I think not many of us think about the nitty gritty of financial commitment when we are preparing for marriage. I mean, we remember about picking up the dress because that's the most important thing or the outfits for ladies and gentlemen, but not really thinking about the less romantic processes. So why do you need to think about that? And is it too late if you already said you ID do? <laughs> no, it's not too late. Uh, the thing is, if, if you do not have an agreement before you're married, then, uh, or any kind of a financial arrangement, um, the state, whichever state you're in, will give you one automatically. In other words, there are state law for instance, in California, provides that everything you acquire during marriage uh, by work, in other words, your earnings, is community property. Well, that's your contract if you don't change it. But so, so you have a prenup by default, in a sense. Um, people can change it. And uh, the other thing maybe people don't realize enough is that uh, is that uh, you can change the rules after you're married with a written agreement verbal agreements like they used to say are not worth the paper they're written on so must be in writing must be signed and dated um i recommend to people that they uh should file it with the county recorders um because that is official notice then to any creditor that what your financial arrangements are. Uh, in other words, a creditor, even though you're married, cannot count on community earnings if you have a written agreement that keeps your earnings separate. So, um, Yes. But based on that, um, I wanted to ask you, Judith, uh, did you have a prenup when you started your marriage? Oh, Lordy, that was so long ago. Oh, my gosh. No, I never, I had not heard of prenups, actually, at that time. I was, what, 20 years old. <laughs> and extremely ignorant. Do you have post now? Um, the post-up was the divorce. Oh, so. And that was decided by a judge. Absolutely. So that happens uh, to um, the best, uh, even though you try the best, it can happen. Um, I guess it's a hard way to learn. Um, if you could think 
do things differently what would you do differently in your marriage i mean i i mean in in financial sense in the writing or prenup or postnup um in a financial sense um well things things ended well enough financially for us because we were in california and everything was considered community property and even though we were not able to agree between us without going to court um, we didn't have that much for the court to divide up at the time um, the, the main thing was child and spousal support so um, so during the marriage, what would I have done differently? Oh, I think I would not have gotten married in the first place. Sorry to say, but <laughs> it was definitely the wrong person, I think. Well, does it mean that uh, you, you do not advise to ever get married? I'm sorry, say again? Do you advise I, not to ever marry? Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, I think marriage is a fine idea. But um, as I say, I was extremely ignorant back then. That was a long time ago. And uh, I was very young, too. So, yeah. <laughs> I, right. But I... So, Judith, we yeah. learned the hard way, right? I, I've been through uh, a marriage, previous marriage, and we have actually a lovely comment, uh, if I may mention here, a little bit of private uh, mentions. This is my husband mentioning that we had an uh, anniversary just uh, yesterday. Happy, happy anniversary, Miss Young. This is the happily ever after. Well, I t I haunt him with that. <laughs> and oh, sorry, is that mansplaining? Probably, Patrick. Jane is saying hello, Beth and Judy. And Olga is saying hooray, the happily ever after show, like a proper Disney movie. Oh, except old Corp went woke a while back. Ho, ho. Mm. Well, let's go into the happily ever after and our chances of having that um, outcome. So you're getting married. I mean, there are so many stories and so many, uh, I would say, um, like movies uh, talking about prenup, especially when they are two parties that one is well off, the other one is not quite well off. How do you find a balance for both parties that one is not screwed over the other? And how do you start? I mean, let's say that the lady is less fortunate, uh, less uh, wealthy. Um, and how can she spin this agreement into something positive rather than looking for negative well it's a it's it's a question of being able to talk with each other uh, you know talking about money uh, is, is very difficult i think for most people and i think most uh young people have not had the experience in their families of being 
frank and involved in financial planning and discussions. So first of all, you need to uh, to to perhaps learn or get some advice on how to conduct difficult conversations. Um, there are people who can give you instruction in that, how to give, well, let me reach here. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's um, a, an open door communication.org that features instruction in difficult conversations. Then there's another, there's several. Uh, the magic of conflict is, is another one. So I'm sure you can find on Google. And so it's a question of getting comfortable with a frank discussion. So then you would, the two of you would want to talk about how do you see your financial future? Um, it's, I, I, I think that, that it's protection of assets is maybe only one purpose of a premarital agreement. If, for example, you might want to, uh, uh, well, let me say one couple, I did a premarital agreement for, mediated. Um, wife was living, wife-to-be was living with her parents and she was paying the mortgage as rent to live there. And the couple intended to both live there. But once they got married, her earnings would be community property by default if they had no other agreement. And therefore, community property, paying the mortgage on the house, would give a community interest in her parents' house to this married couple. Well, they both agreed they didn't want that. Husband had no problem with that. So they did a written agreement that they kept their earnings separate property. And so they keep them in separate bank accounts. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, then the, any payments made, they agreed, would not result in community property. They would be, the payments would remain her separate property. So therefore, that was, she was the heir of her parents anyway, so that was fine with them. In any case, so they therefore changed California law to assure that her parents' house did not become community property of the young couple. Or so any that's, part of it. One, that's one way of securing. Uh, but let's imagine, and this is some, some story that... Uh, I lived uh, I was a young, ambitious uh, girl. I had my husband. Uh, I, I've known my future husband for three years, and we decided to get married because I was pregnant, expecting a child. So um, we uh, were first living with his parents. I was gathering more money than my husband. But eventually, we managed to buy a house, get a mortgage on a on a uh, apartment, and his parents helped me uh, helped us more uh, than my contribution. So once we got divorced, it was a lot of friction from uh, friction from the parents because 
you know, more or less, they expected me to pay more, even though it was a joint property, or they expect me to pay my ex-husband uh, in full and donate the rest, the other half, to my daughter. So what would you believe, what do you believe would be the best outcome? How should I prepare for that, uh, that outcome? Is there a way to prepare for something like that? Oh, these things are also delicate to bring up. You know, it's like at the time that the parents are are providing the money to bring up the fact that you want a written agreement in case you and your husband split up as to how they are to be paid back. That's like bringing up, well, we might split up where everybody's expecting you to live happily ever after. But still, it's it's best to say, let's be clear. We don't know what the future is going to be. So let's put it in writing. You're giving us X amount of money. It's a flat out gift to the two of us equally or whatever else you can you can agree to. You know, one one method of um, negotiating an agreement is to make proposals. And that's like, you do this. It's not saying you do this or I want that. It's to say, I propose that we whatever. And then the other person can come back and say, well, I hear your proposal, but I propose that we do something else. And then you go back and forth. You, you, um, you know, you, a proposal would take care of, of, you know, who does what and when and, and where. And so uh, um, I think that that makes the start of a discussion easier to say it's a proposal. It's a proposal. We should put our emotions to the side and think clearly about what the arguments are. We have a comment from Olga Vasina. If you are mediating a negotiation on a prenup, is that not a bad sign for relationship longevity in and of itself? I would say not. Uh, marriage is a contract. There's no getting around that. It's a contract. Do you want to write your own contract or do you want the state to write it for you? So there, there, there you have it. Um, once upon a time in the state of California, we had uh, Governor Brown II. His father was Governor Brown also. But Governor Brown, who uh, was also known as Governor Moonbeam, because he had some interesting ideas. In any case, the state legislature of California passed a law that would require that people getting married uh, sign a premarital agreement. And the governor vetoed that because he said it was not romantic. So there you have it, there, that, there is a view. But um, I think that, that, um, that if, you, if you can sit down and discuss how you're going to run your life financially, because 
when you're living together, married or not, money is, is an issue. There are expenses. There's housing costs. There's food. There's, somebody has to pay for it. And if you can talk about it in advance so there's no ugly surprises and there's no later resentments or uh, misunderstandings. You know, discussing this in advance might have another advantage in that you might find out that the person you're contemplating living with is an absolutely impossible person, that they're rude or they're uh, controlling. And, and you might find all their bad side before you get married. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, and a mediator, a mediator does not act with, with a preconceived idea of what the outcome is going to be. The mediator's job is guiding a process, you know? I mean, a mediator can provide some general information and, and can help the two people listen to each other. Um, and, and a mediator can help to focus on one issue at a time rather than uh, um, jumping around. Although I must say some mediators are better than others. Uh, I, had, uh, I had one couple in for mediation that had been to uh, another mediator and they said they just drifted around and seemed to get nowhere. Um, fact was their first mediator was a, had a psychology background. And uh, it's quite different with a mediator who has a law background because they're more task-oriented rather than trying to delve into the whys and the wherefores and the, and the psychology behind somebody's decisions. In any case, the, the mediator could help clarify proposals with one another and, and could help you one another to respond to the other's proposals. So, um, and, and then help come to an actual conclusion. But the mediator does not have a stake in the outcome or a preconceived idea of what the outcome is going to be, except there. So is, uh, there's another question that comes from this answer. Is mediator supposed to be you know, right, I mean, uh, justify the power between the two or do they provide whatever the outcome is coming their way? Well, they, they, they talk about power balancing, but um, I, I, had, I had one couple come in and the wife was totally passive completely passive and the husband was dictating everything and I, I tried to get her to participate and it didn't work and the husband says that's okay this is the way she is let's just do it and I said no I, I could not do that and well I've had two cases like that um, that I could not do it the way husband wanted me to do it he wanted me to just rule over the wife. 
in another case, I was concerned that that wife was not participating much. And I sent them both letters in writing to say I had this concern. And they came back and said, no, no, no. Wife said, don't worry. You know, I'm just in total agreement with them. So it's fine. And so that was good. But uh, power balancing, I, in principle, I say, well, it's been a principle in mediation in general is that you do not mediate in cases where there's domestic violence. There's no way to to uh, balance the power in that. Um, I there, there, in this county, judges were so concerned about about domestic violence that they required that any a lawyer who wanted to be appoint, appointed to represent children had to go through a 12-hour domestic violence training. And then they did the same requirement for any psychologist who wanted to be appointed as a custody evaluator, that they should go to the 12-hour uh, training. And so I attended both of those trainings, not that I wanted to represent children or be a psychologist, but I wanted to know what can I expect from these people. So uh, I this was not a mediated case. This was when I was litigating. Uh, I represented a young woman who was a teacher and in grad school, and her husband was a lawyer. And they were both tall and very attractive people, and they had two young children. But the, the violence started on their honeymoon in Hawaii. And, and so after four years, wife just said, you know, this is enough. I can't do it. We want a divorce. I want a divorce. So the judge assigned them to uh, um, a custody evaluator. And um, so before they went in, I, I one of the principles where there's domestic violence is that the two people are not in the same room. So I, I called the psychologist's office and I said, I wanted to be sure that they would not be in the same room. And the, uh, the uh, secretary or administrative assistant was very insulted and said, we know our business. Don't tell us how to do it. And wife came back and told me the psychologist had them in the same room and she was afraid to say how she really felt because she was afraid he would get even with her later, punish her later. So that's why in, 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 there's no power balancing if there's domestic violence. That's really interesting. We have, we have a question from In Love and In Pain, and I think it's a, it's a very philosophical question. Hi, Bella and Judy. Uh, love to you too, in love and in pain. What should we do when we are still in love, but also in pain or hurt at the same time? Well, Judith, I guess you have, you have been through some love and some pain and you raised seven children. So I think you're the best person to ask, answer this question. Uh, no, I was never in love and in pain at the same time. No, if I was in pain, it was not love. 
However, um, I'm not a psychologist, but, uh, and, and, and so it's hard to say if you're in pain and in hurt without knowing, you know, the, what is the source of the pain and the hurt? I mean, is, I discovered in some close relationships when we were doing a community activity that sometimes people reacted, a person would react to another person as if that person was their parent. You know, there was just something about the relationship that, that one reacted to the other on a totally historical basis, not hysterical, but historical. And, and uh, so we engaged a psychologist and did some group sessions. And this one woman realized, oh, I was reacting to you as if you were my mother because she always, or whatever it was. So maybe the pain comes from past relationships and there's something happening now that hooks you into the past. Um, I would say to, you know, what to do is explore all possible methods of relieving the pain or the hurt. Find out the source. Right, that's uh, that's vital and very important answer. I hope you take it in love and in pain. Definitely, it's an interesting mix of feelings when you're in love, but also in pain. That sounds more like a domestic violence relationship, but who knows? Uh, we do not know the background, Judith. Um, we have got comment from Olga Vasina to your previous comment. Uh, socialist men like govern. Governor Moonbeam Brown, so romantic and idealistic about spending other people's money. There you go. Agatha Bellon is making comment. Fascinating show, fascinating show. Thank you, Judith. This is a great positivity hug delivered. Is there a general rule of thumb how long a prenup will take to negotiate? Uh, no, no, there isn't. Um... There are there are some general rules about prenups. What can and should not be included. Um, first of all, in California, well, there is a there is a, a national standard for prenups, uniform prenuptial agreement, um, and I think all the states have adopted the uniform standard. Um, first of all. The prenup must be prepared and finished at least seven days before the wedding. And that is to provide time for consultation with lawyers or other advisors. So, you, you know, that the, the signing the prenup on the church doorstep is not a valid prenup. So, one week ahead. It must be finished. Other than that, I would say that to negotiate, um, you don't need a mediator to negotiate it. The two of you can do it yourself, or one person can hire a lawyer to prepare it. 
and then give it to the other one and then he or she could take it to their lawyer to discuss or they can hire two lawyers to to uh, work it out but uh, there's no rule as to how to arrive at a prenuptial agreement but it must be in writing and it must be in writing at least a week before the wedding at least a week before the wedding right yes so why is that time critical before the wedding so that there are no surprises so that you have time to think about it time to read it time to consult with mom and dad and uncle ted who's a lawyer uh whatever just so that it's not coerced in any way there's mm. fully full time to think about it and talk to and get advice Mm. So you don't shrug it off when you go to through that aisle. So we've got Olga saying fascinating and very moving stories, Judith. How did you find the shift between mediation and advocacy? They are similar but somewhat different, right? Oh well, my experience is uh, is um, almost totally in in uh, as they say in California dissolution of marriage it used to be called divorce some people pronounce it disillusion of marriage um, the court process is awful it's illogical there are lawyers that play games with it to earn a lot of fees. Um, there's no control over it. There's no, um, there's no limit. Well, there, there's no, it, it's just awful. I, I, uh, I did, uh, I did uh, presented my book at, uh, I signed up for a bridal expo a month ago and at the Anaheim Convention Center. And a man helping his girlfriend in the next booth, they were, I forget what their offer was. Um, he says, I know you. And I said, mm, I didn't recognize I know him. He says, do you know Brian X? And I said, yeah, I know Brian, he's a lawyer. And he says, well, I put his kids through college. And I said, what? He says, yeah, he did my, I, I saw you in court when I was in court for my divorce. I spent $300,000 on that divorce. And he says, and there wasn't that much there. And I ended up after a year with custody anyway, because my ex was incompetent. So uh, that's the kind of things that went on in, in courts with litigation for divorce. Um, and in fact, in California, the divorces are not decided by judges, except in rare occasions. I was astonished to look at the statistics that were presented by the Judicial Council. The Judicial Council are the people that run the courts in California. And uh, this one year I looked at it, not that long, two or three years ago, 
they reported there had been 365,000 uh, divorces completed in the state. And of those 365,000, those completed by a hearing in front of a judge were only 1,300 and some. So it's less than 1% of the people that actually have their case decided in front of a judge. And the rest of the time are endless continuances, hearings, um, negotiations in the hallway when you've got a day in court and you never do get to see the judge. It's the process. Um, yeah, there was a young man working for me part-time and uh, he and his wife split up and they had three children and he was very close with them and he wanted the first thing to get a good parenting plan. His case was continued five times before they got an actual hearing before the judge. Can you imagine what it's like if you've got kids or a job to go to court time after time after time and you don't get a hearing? You're continued, you have to take off work, you have to pay your lawyer for the time in court, but nothing happens. Um, the fifth time, he finally had a different judge and got a very bad order, and I said, don't worry, there's always the trial. And he says, what? There's more? It takes not less than two years to get through a divorce if you go the litigation way. Um, in, uh, in, yes. Are joining you from Malta and divorce was not possible till uh, quite recently. And you mentioned that uh, actually it was Russia that uh, implemented divorce. And uh, because uh, in 1917 in Russia, Turks were in charge of family affairs. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how that law progressed? Yeah, it used to be that um, that um, marriage was was controlled by by the church. Um, although I must say, you know, alimony, or now modernly known as spousal support in some states, uh, alimony were first obligations were first imposed by the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Hebrews. Um, Part of that was the practice helped to avoid feuds with the wife's relatives. So, and in fact, uh, the code of Ham Rabbi going back to 1754 BC provided for spousal support. In any case, how the law changed, um, no fault divorce. The very first no fault divorce in modern times was 1917 in Russia. After the revolution, the church, the power of the church was taken away by the communist regime. And uh, there was no, at that time, no spousal support because everybody was equal. Uh, I think that changed. I think there is now um, an issue of support in Russia. But uh, in any case, um, 
but then later on, No Fault was kind of in the air. The, the people that write the uniform codes were discussing uh, No Fault divorce when California adopted it in 1973. Uh, I, I would like to point out that up until that time, although California was always a community property state, up until 1973, which to my mind is not that long ago, 1973, the interests of husband and wife were equal, but the husband had management and control of the property. And I thought, you know, when I was in law school, I was thinking, how is that equal if he's got management and control? But that's the way the law was. And now in 1973, when uh, no fault was established, um, both parties have management and control of community property. Um, the other thing is, is that up until that time, um, you had to prove somebody was the bad guy to get a divorce. And there were a lot of private agreements between the parties. They both wanted a divorce. And one of them would go to court and swear that the other one was a, a no good in some way or another. Um, emotional distress, you know. So uh, they got the divorce that way. And, and they, everybody knew it was just a game going on. But, uh, but you had to prove somebody was at fault. Of course, now that's uh, different. That's much more difficult to prove. And nowadays, you have to have solid evidence and you have to show um, even if your husband uh, was cheating on you, uh, it could be twisted because you were not supportive wife. So it's, it's never a dumb dunk uh, deal. And we have a question from Olga Vasina. So Judith, are prenups a means to always ensure alimony without acrimony? Generally, prenups, um, if they talk about alimony or spousal support at all, it's not necessary to include that in a prenup. But if it is included, um, it will not be enforced by the court if both parties, if, if the one party who who waives the support was not represented by a lawyer. In other words, if, if husband has his lawyer draw up the prenup and wife signs it, if she did not have a lawyer, the fact that she agreed to no spousal support would not be upheld by the court. And secondly, if it would be at the, under the circumstances that exist, at the time the couple was separating, if it would be unconscionable to deny support to the wife, the court would not enforce any waiver of spousal support. For example, somehow during the marriage she becomes disabled. 
it would be unconscionable to not provide support when the couple splits up. So even if she had agreed, even with advice uh, to no support in a premarital agreement, it would not be upheld by the court. So, Judith, so, uh, uh, let me ask you one one vital question. What would be if if it's already uh, you know you said I do and you're enjoying your marriage um, and we know that it's not too late to write down the rules and obligations in case some things go wrong. What would be the advice from you as a mediator and person? who experience love and pain to have the best outcome for both parties. What are the critical details we need to nail down to have happily ever after? Uh, well, it's, it's to be clear on, on mutual goals. So if you would sit down and, and uh, and talk about what your aims and your goals are. Um, you can write a written agreement anytime. For example, one woman who had come to me for a divorce uh, was ran her own business, and um, she told me that it had been she had been working at it for eleven years and was quite successful. But at the beginning, she had wanted it to be her separate property. Um, and she had consulted a lawyer and he said, oh, no, it would have to be community property, which was not true. It was bad advice. If she and her husband could have sat down or mediated or had a lawyer draw it up, they could have written an agreement that the, uh, that the um, business would be her sole and separate property. Uh, in another case, there was a woman I represented that um, had inherited money and um, she had put it in an account in her separate name. And um, she didn't have any written agreement with the husband about this money, but it, she assumed it was gonna continue to be her separate property because it was in a bank account in her separate name. In the divorce, the judge decided that she had converted the account to community property by depositing her community earnings in that same account. I thought that was an unfair decision, but the amount of money involved was not worth filing an appeal with. But if they had had a written agreement that would assure that this money in this account dear Clara, will always be your separate property. It would have stayed her separate property. But so a written agreement clarifies issues like inheritances uh, and what you do with it. For example, what if you inherit $100,000 and you spend $50,000 of it on vacations, buying fancy cars? Um, that money's gone. You don't get it back unless you have an agreement to say, I'm going to invest this and um, in, our, in our community, but uh, I want to get it back later. 
So you could do an agreement as to that. Contracts. Contracts. So what is, um, sorry, what is the community property? You could explain briefly um, what is community property. Yes, in the, in the community property is anything acquired from earnings from work during marriage. Um, community property is not what you owned before you got married, unless you specifically take action to convert it to community property. But um, it's it's the idea has been in existence for a long time i mean in the middle ages they had community property in parts of spain and france and and uh, some think that it started with germanic tribes the idea of joint ownership of whatever you acquired during marriage um so say if you if you own stock uh before you marry and you have a stockbroker that handles all your buy and sell and you do nothing but a phone call, uh, that stock remains separate property. However, if you're the person that manages those stocks and you're online buy and sell, you know, before work, after work, whatever, you're spending your time managing that. Well, then the fact that it's your efforts uh, in that gives that uh, some a community interest. Um, so let's say that uh, if, uh, if a girlfriend bought a, a house before getting married, that's her property. But if they bought a house uh, during marriage, that's community property. Yes. It depends on the okay. source of the money. Well, wait a minute. Let's say one person has a savings account of $20,000. And so they use that money as a down payment on the house. Uh, the house will be community property. But if you can trace the source of the down payment to separate property, in this state, you're entitled to get that down payment back. And not with interest, but just the down payment, you can be re reimbursed. For that, okay. Um, and it's fascinating. We are heading towards the end of our show. I've got a couple of questions that I wanted to ask you because you've had some interesting answers. What is your strategy for problem solving? Oh, well, I guess you might say, what's the next indicated step? that's a start <laughs> or, or 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 start with proposals like uh, as i said you know i propose that you do this then and whenever and i do that and then that person can respond well no i propose that you do that blah 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 and you go back and forth until you can work out some some things become mutual agreements right um none of us are able to achieve success without some help 
is there a particular person you are grateful towards and who is that who is who's how did she help or he helped you oh back in the day back in the day i uh i was involved in early as many women were we got acquainted with the women's organizations and uh so my daughter was having a problem in in high school that that suddenly classes were boys only graphic arts and uh, so i suggested she called this lawyer that did civil rights that i had heard of um and then later, when I went to law school and I finished law school, this lawyer called me up. It was in December of 1976, which was the International Year of the Woman, coincidentally. Anyway, she called me up and she said, I see by the Daily Journal that you have passed the bar. I'm willing to share my office with you. Four day, you can use it four days a week while I'm in Los Angeles at my father's office and for just half the rent. Well, she was sharing with two other people she had gone to school with. So her share, uh, half of her share of the rent for four days a week was $75 a month. And that's how I started the practice of law. Well, kudos to her Sorry. and well done, Judith, for having this great collection. Let's imagine the pandemic is over and you could invite any person in the world to have private breakfast anywhere in the world. Who would you invite and where would you go to? Oh, well, I would invite Angela Merkel. And I think she's had a fascinating life. She was, as I understand, in, in science. Uh, she's from East Berlin. And where we would where we would have breakfast would be in Berlin. I let her pick the place, but Berlin, well, actually my one of my kids lives in Berlin and uh, and I love the city. So that's I'd want to know her life. So Angela Merkel is your inspiration um, as being brought up uh, in Eastern Germany. I guess that would be somewhere nearby Checkpoint Park, Charlie, right? <laughs> I don't know. I've been there. Actually, I've there been there go. when it was Eastern Yes. Mm, fabulous. Uh, what is your life lesson quote and how did it change you in your life, in, in your career? Oh, my life lesson quote, I, I learned from a client, uh, and one, one client in particular. She was, she was long, she was divorced, but having major problems dealing with the ex in terms of the, uh, parenting and um, and and child support. And she was telling me, you know, he does this, 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 he shouldn't do that, right? And I said, you're right. And he this, this, and this, and he shouldn't do that, right? Right. And none of it was anything that could be fixed by a court order. And I finally, it came to me I that being right, I mean, she was entirely right but it didn't get her what she wanted. So my quote is being right does not get you what you want. 
being effective does. We love that quote. Um, Judith, I think we have a perfect quotation as well for uh, our struggling with uh, slow internet today. Before you marry a person, you should first make them use a computer with slow internet to see who they really are. That's Will Ferrell's quote. <laughs> we can uh, definitely um, vouch for that. Uh, and one uh, last uh, question what is next for judy what is the plan what is uh, your next stage apart from you've written a book you're planning to translate it oh i don't know i'll have to ask my son in berlin about that <laughs> um uh, actually he translated a, a, a post-nup agreement between two people in berlin um, in any case, next, next, I, I'm doing some Fullerton history, and uh, I also want to do uh, an analysis of the sad state of divorce in California. Well, we wish you all the success. That's it from episode 69 of our live stream. Thank you, Judith Kaujine. To stay updated and ensure you never miss a positivity hack delivered, follow Women on IT and turn on notifications to be alerted. Next week, we are going to talk with uh, James Gebhardt, who's going to talk about from electrician to startup founder about his exciting new startup. I would like to thank very much in, in IPOVIT, in Loving Pain, Jane Olga Vasina, Agata Bellon, and see you next week. And tell when you focus on positives, the positives get more positive. Thank you very much. Stay positive and see you next week. Bye-bye.